The following podcast contains explicit language. Coming up, I've got an interview for you guys I think everybody's going to enjoy. But before we step into today's interview with Jamal Cyrus, I just wanted to talk about the theory of this show and what you can expect. I'm going to try to do a couple of things in these conversations that are not totally normal. And I, I want to tell you why so that it's not totally confusing. The first thing is that I want to make these interviews as evergreen as I possibly can. I want you to be able to come in and click on, let's say, Robert Pruitt's interview a year from now and even five years from now and really enjoy it. And that means not asking questions about what's going on in the news today or in the world right now. So if you don't hear me ask about this or that story or even if it's an artist about this show or that show or this piece of work, uh, which is completely dominating you know, their headlines at the moment, that's why. That's why I didn't forget, and I'm not afraid to press my guests on it, but it's not what I'm trying to do here. I want to give you a lasting record of how my guests think about the world, not an ephemeral look at uh, what they thought about a specific story or a specific event in the world right now. Um, The next thing I want is for this to be a place where you can understand why people are the hero of their own stories. I'm gonna make it a point to Uh, in the series talk to people I necessarily don't necessarily agree with and who sometimes I strongly don't agree with or even like at all and although I'm going to try to be present in those conversations and I may press them in places to see why they think what they think I'm not trying to do takedowns here the goal is to understand their thinking not to prove them wrong I think there are plenty of places and spaces where we tell each other why the people we disagree with are stupid or completely wrong, and I want this to be a place where you can see and where I get to learn how the people we meet in the world are often very smart, and how smart people can have lives dramatically different from our own, and how their decisions are often more relatable than we actually think. Third, and I'm almost done here with the preamble here. Uh, These are conversations, and I intend to be a part of them, and I'm a pretty opinionated guy. I've never made a secret about that. Also, I believe that people tend to give very different answers to questions when they're in the give and take of a conversation as opposed to a more structural, formal, artificial setting where they're the only one talking. One reason I'm still open to this being called the Very Black Male Show (laughs) despite the fact that it embarrassed me to say that name aloud, uh, is the constant that is me. I am the constant in it. I am present. And all of my questions come from a specific point of view, that of myself, a male who is undeniably of African-American descent. And with that said, I want to move on to today's conversation. Jamal Cyrus. I'm gonna jump right into that. Hey Jamal. Okay. Hey Leon. Oh Astro. <laughs> How would you describe your work? Um, multilingual, history obsessed, focused on material based on image, based on abstraction. I started out as a photographer in high school. You went to HSPBA. <clears throat> went to HSPBA, uh, but my most my most um, important um, 
photography like educators at the time was a woman named Amy Blakemore mm-hmm. who was at Glassell School. So I went to PVA but also took stuff at Glassell School and she really helped me to um, I don't know just start to to appreciate the um, the the joys of a creative life and the advantages and all of that stuff. So mm-hmm. I would say yeah that's kind of where I started. And she's the person who introduced you to the Diana Camp, is that right? Diana Camera. Uh-huh. Diana Camera. Yeah. Actually, I want to. I want to. Before I get too far, I want to take a step backwards, and um, ask where you grew up, and if you're from Houston, um, you, you're from Missouri City, right? Well, I'm from Houston, so originally, um, Hiram Clark area. That's where I first lived, um, back in the must have been like the early 80s we um we moved to Missouri City Mm -hmm. and that's you know so the time that I was let's say fifth fifth grade on I lived in Missouri City yeah and Um, and once I graduated but you know went to PVA so I had to come in bust into Montrose um, you were part of the magnet program. Part of the magnet program there. Um, graduated in visual art. You know, had friends here, and so I don't know. It was just like a coming back and forth between the the suburbs of Houston and the, and the inner city. What do you mean, friends here? Well, we're doing this interview at uh, Texas Southern University, where Jamal is a professor. Um, and is that what you mean by here, like this part of town? No, I meant mid, mid Houston. Mm. You know, because it's like really different in the suburbs. It is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you, yeah, how much you live out there, but it's it's a very different situation. But I mean, even more so back then. Could we talk about that for a second? Yeah. When you grew up in the mid eighties, and you were involved in like the skateboard culture, mm-hmm. and um, you were listening to uh, punk rock at the time. Mm-hmm. Punk uh, rock, new wave, eventually started. Um, listening to um, hip hop when I found certain openings. What was that opening? Um, the main opening was well, was a couple. One is that like hip hop started to appear in skateboard magazines. That was one. And the other opening was um, the group. Well, the album Three Feet High and Rising. Three Feet High and Rising. Yeah, by by the group De La Soul. So that was for me a really um, important musical document um, that served as again like an opening for me, but also for a lot of other people in my generation who were kind of like on the outskirts of blackness. Are both of your parents from Houston also? No, neither one was from Houston. So my dad is from North Texas. North Texas, right around the right outside the Dallas area, farmland. Um, yeah, pretty much. And my mother is um, from Alexandria, Louisiana, so Central Louisiana. How did they meet? They met um, while working at NASA. They both worked at NASA. My mother was a secretary. My dad was a a drafter at NASA, and they met um, kind of in this carpool. Yeah. yeah. That is interesting. Um, without 
painting an image that there are no black people that were in tech in the 80s. Um, do you think that that might have been some of the reasons why you were on the fringe of blackness, as you just described it, kind of? No, that was mainly <laughs> because of, uh, well, of course it's because of, well, there was a class thing there, yeah, that's part of it, which I guess I could attribute it to them and being able to make a little money. But then, like, there were other decisions I made, like, you know, to ride a skateboard and to do some of those other things. Those were just not... Right now, they're, they're popular. They're more, more popular things for, for black kids to do. But back then, in the 80s, like, they didn't really... Yeah, you were seen as, like, a total sellout for doing stuff like that. And people got fights for doing stuff like that. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. what, what were some of the people who, like, impacted... Um, like your development and, and, and even like introduced you to like the skate culture? Uh, those are just people who were around. So like they were, um, this kid named Tracy McVicker, um, this guy named Bob Fox, um, this kid named George Fan. These were like people who I, so I kind of like hung out with this, this little group of, um, basically like South Asian and like well he was he was part one was part one's Korean one's one was part Filipino part Irish and then like a few spatterings of the white kids and like but the 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 guy who was the Filipino or Irish kid was from California right and so was heavy in like BMXing and really got to set the pace for for a lot of other people, right? Um, and so they started bringing in these skateboards and people started skating. Yeah. And uh, people started building ramps and people started doing, yeah. So it was like, it just, it, it took off. And so that was, um, I would say, my first year in middle school when that started to to happen. And I, I don't know. It's quite I, an international delegation of friends. Well, you know, su supposedly Fort Bend is like, when the people talk about diversity of Houston, like, that's where that diversity exists. Like, in very high high numbers, you know. So, it makes sense, like, I don't know, back then, like, we would we'd be running with kids who are from all around, and, yeah. Yeah. It was kind of fun. So, as you're getting older, uh, and, and then you're in high school at HSPPA, and you're doing things over at the Glacelles also, how did you, what was your introduction to the Glacelles school? I think my dad might have gotten me involved with that in some kind of way. Um, I think, so, you know, it's, it's one of those things like looking for stuff to do in the summertime, and I had taken... A, um, a class in photography and I wanted to continue but I was looking for a place because it was like between schools right it's like in the summertime it was between because I was going to leave Dulles and I was going to go to um, HSPBA so I, I spent one year at Dulles High School huh. in Sugarland and then I went to HSPBA and so I was leaving and, and I was trying to find something to do and I think my dad found out about Glassdale School of Art and that um, they offered darkroom classes there and, um, yeah, I was just fortunate enough to get this teacher named Amy Blakemore. Who changed your life? Who, yeah, I mean, who really, um, 
who did change my life in terms of of yeah, just like showing me like well making like making um art making a personal journey, right? Like showing me like it's like it's one of those things. You know what I'm saying? It's not like manifestation. Manifestation. What do you mean by that? I meet a lot of artists and their view on art making can be very entrepreneurial mm-hmm. um, and even project-based, mm-hmm. project-based specifically. And other artists who I meet who basically just believe that everything they do is going to be you know, a part of their art journey rather than this is specifically my hustle. Mm-hmm. And so um, as someone described it to me before, it's kind of like manifesting manifesting it into your life you mm-hmm. know, the success or, or not even success maybe manifesting just the creative you know spirit the creative, yeah the creative spirit and that's something that um i think uh maurice duhon he mentioned to me that he learned when he was at hspba too mm-hmm. and it's like one of those things that they invigorate you with while he was there and he says it probably is one of the reasons why you get people like beyonce who come out of there and uh, all these different types of people who yeah. come yeah. it's a different style of teaching teaching them to focus on believing that whatever they're doing is right and to keep developing that versus trying to fit them into a, a predefined definition for you know what you're supposed to make or mm-hmm. no yeah not, it, and it's, it, that's definitely how it was yeah. I mean I would say um, at that time in your life like you are just you are very open to finding out more about yourself and then like I I realized that the the camera was part of that you know what I'm saying like and so I could just have a camera and go out and be in the world and like for me also like the the issue of looking through you know through the viewfinder kind of or finding images it's kind of like you're trying to look at the world in another way too so like there's an exploration there there's a double exploration there, like, that you're finding about yourself and you're finding out about the world, too, right? So that was, um, I don't know. So that, that had a big impact on me. And I, I thought I made some, some decent photographs in college. So I was, I was um, very, pre- I don't want to say prepared, but very excited about the things I learned. Um, by the time I graduated high school, I had spent some time with some very creative people um, there I got to I got to see um, basically I got to find out about how if you have something in your mind like how you can achieve it right and and I realized a little bit later that you know that same lesson can be applied to anything not just art making but anything in your life so I, I, I thought that that was a really um, I don't know, so I thought that art making really had a lot to do with um, building my self-esteem and my will and my ability to um, to understand how to work. You graduated high school in what year? 91. 1991. Yeah. And then your first school that you went to, was that Texas Southern? My first school I went to was UT. University of Texas. Mm-hmm. And then you attended about three different colleges, is that uh-huh. right? So I went to UT. I went to TSU, and then I, and then I graduated from um, University of Houston. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were some of the social issues that were standing out at the moment, which you feel like may have impacted 
your decision to go to certain school <coughs> or even your decision to um, you know pursue art making or things mm -hmm. that might have indirectly this is a very big question and you can take out the bits that you don't want to answer but the things that might have indirectly affected the reason you were even exposed to the arts mm -hmm. um, I'm curious well I mean being in high, the high school part exposed me to the arts right mm -hmm. But it didn't, it didn't really expose me to a lot of um, black contributions in arts, especially visual arts, right? So in terms of the direction that I went, um, I would attribute it to a lot to, of course, my education, my parents' support of my being an artist. Um, and then at that time, popular culture, you know, like for instance, that was the time in which um, people call the golden age of hip hop, right? Like, and so there was so much uh, cultural information in that music. You know, whether you talk about the rhymes or whether you talk about, you know, the music itself, there was so much cultural information there that um, for people who were artists, that that really kind of invigorated them and set them on on that path. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you got put onto the path, and then you ended up at a few different universities. Um, were you always set that it was going to be uh, arts, the arts, or did you switch majors? Were you um, at a few different times? Do you mind? Uh, it was it was always between art and um, architecture, because mm -hmm. I also. Um, was starting to feel like I maybe wanted something a little more practical, like that I could have a, you know, have a job and that kind of thing with. And I was also always interested in architecture, and I, I was um, fairly good at it. The um, same concerns that plague many yeah, of today. Yeah. So, um, but it never really, it never really did it for me. It never happened. So I always just, I was just stayed. Um, with, 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 with art programs and eventually um, I was trying at UH I was trying to get into the sculpture block right but in order to do sculpture block you have to take interior design which I had taken one time and failed and I didn't want to take anymore so instead of doing sculpture block I went into photo block because I had the, the number of classes that I needed you know, and then I had like a background and you know a little background in photo and that kind of stuff. So I felt comfortable enough to do that, and I made it. And so, um, yeah. So from there, I really didn't. Um, I didn't have to use the camera, and I didn't for the most part. I used a lot of scanners. I used um, appropriated images and that kind of thing, and so. Um, so like pieces like the, the Pride Records pieces and that kind of stuff that's those start to evolve at that time and this is around the time when you started doing more pieces based off of historical events mm -hmm. and um, oh, using of off of a lot that's of different materials so right now you've got the I don't know if we need to date this but it's 2016 uh, November You've got the show up at the Inman Gallery. I mean, there's so many different uh, styles of things that are going on. Some of it is tapestry. 
Some of it is using skin, or it looks like skin, like animal skins, like with the book sleeves. Of drum skin. Uh-huh. It's a drum skin. Is your use of materials, how did that uh, kind of evolve in your academic time period? Well, that that will come later. So later. I think that started, that, well, that started to come a little bit in undergrad. So I, I would basically be trying to use images in, in, in sculptural applications, right? So maybe print out these stickers or print out these things like I print out these popcorn bags, like yeah. You know, so I would just I would basically just try to try to like manipulate the print to be some other object, not always but often, or like um, creating something that would act as a record label, right? Um, after which I had just made in Photoshop, right? So it's just yeah. So trying to combine these. Um, these two different worlds of sculpture and photography, um, fact and fiction, you know, Photoshop really allowed people, you know, early on um, to create some images which were um, very mysterious to people because they didn't know how it was made or they didn't know if it was true or what have you. And so I was coming like at, at that time. Um, and so, yeah, I was I was for the most part creating creating things that you can find in the real world, but I things that, that I had I had made, I had created, you know, they were fictional, but they were they were made well enough to where it could perhaps fool the viewer to thinking this had come from some off some production line. I'm gonna skip uh, forward a few years. How did you get your first show? Group show. The first group show? Um well, so we used to do our own shows, like early on. So that would be like um, Robert and myself. We used to do Robert Pruitt. Yeah, we used to do shows at like uh, Project Row Houses, or we used to do shows at um, Commerce Street Artist Warehouse, um, other places. Did you guys used to put the shows together? Um, curate the shows. Yeah, um, reach out to the galleries. Um, no, reaching out the galleries at that time. I mean, it was just doing. The reach sh- out to the spaces. Yeah, to find the space. Ask them about it. Like in back then, man, it was like so crazy because, like, a, even a place like Commerce Street that has a really nice, you know, pretty good, decent gallery. Um, you just basically just walk and ask them if they can do a show and like. They would say okay, and then you know you make the little cards and you go to a show. It wasn't like all this proposals and these kind of things. We did eventually have to start doing that, um, but early on it was was very easy, and we all kind of grew up artistically around Project Row Houses. So to do something, to do an exhibition in, in one of the back houses back there, it was, was never a problem, you know. So. Though, yeah, so I would say, like, that's our first shows, you know. But after that, shows we were probably started getting into, like, the big shows, the Lawndale big shows. What is it about those, uh, is there anything about that era which um, sounds like kind of like you were hustling a lot that you um, think is important for maybe even, you know, your students here? And what are you, uh, you're, you're a professor of... Sculptor, sculpture. No, I teach art appreciation courses, and I teach um, some art history courses, and I teach independent studio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Are there any lessons from hustling in that era that you would want to um, yeah. pass on to your students or even just anybody who's a fellow creative? Yeah, I mean, the, right now it's kind of like, I know people are, um, there appears, you know, to be some money in it for people. And, and I know that's what, not always, but that's kind of no uh, money and notoriety in it. And, and that's kind of what people maybe base their decisions for showing, you know, through those two lenses. Um, but like, I don't know, we were just trying to figure it out ourselves. You know, we, we didn't really understand. We didn't know the money and notoriety in it. We just wanted to basically take over Houston in terms of our part. You know, like if you, if you um, are going to be thinking about like young black artists who are working in the field, or if you think about collaborators working field, who we gonna, yeah, and that was that was who we wanted to be. Just be very well known, well respected for uh, being active. I think I don't know if we care. I mean, oh. I don't know about the well respect. I mean, I, I just, I just think we wanted to, to to be making the best work in the, you know, like among our group, like the best work in the city. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, especially if, if you're talking about like that time, you're talking about like Odebing and Jones, really, and like that was that was yes, that was one of our our goals. So. Odebanger Jones, what was the official kind of like? I mean, there's really no official. It's un- I've, I've, I've been getting the un- impression that as a collective, it was already there before you guys gave a name to it. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have like a timeline for that? Uh, in terms of like when it solidifies to solidifies to be mm-hmm. an organization? Yes, it's like yes. I think that's like around 2001, 2002. And at what point did you transition? And you began work as an arts educator um, through the CAM and the Teen Council program. So I went to graduate school in 2006, got out 2008, started working with Prairie View A&M University, spent a couple of years there, started doing adjunct work with HCC, started doing adjunct work with University of Houston, and it was just kind of like I was, you know, it wasn't as bad as some people, but still I'm like running around town trying to like piece together a full-time load, you know, between a couple of institutions. And so I saw this job at the CAM, <clears throat> which was a team council, and I had been very familiar with the CAM, knew people who worked at the CAM since high school, had been visiting the museum. And so I knew a little bit about what that job entailed, and so I applied for it and I was able to get it. And that was in, I think, the fall of fall of twenty twelve, maybe. Yeah. So that's how that came about. I, I have questions about. Um, I have a lot of questions about people's time as an educator. And every time I meet a teacher, I kind of rip their ear open about uh, teaching styles and how do you measure like effectiveness and all those types of things. But 
I'm gonna do my best to spare you about that, as well as uh, be time sensitive uh, and respect your time. But what were some of your takeaways from your time as part of the team council, and some of the things that you might have began to notice that you weren't noticing originally about arts education, education period, and the museum business? Mm-hmm. So my my takeaways. I do feel those institutions are great, like educational facilities for for teens, especially. I feel like within those spaces, they should be allowed as much freedom as they can handle, as the institution can handle. I don't know, I just felt like... Do you have any radical kind of opinions on the education part? Well, maybe not even... I think that is a radical stance, but... uh, I mean, but, like, that's where I saw them as, as, as learning the most and really, like, soaking in the most when you left them alone, okay? But the reality is that is is they're not totally familiar with the environment. Like, they don't know how to necessarily get things done, right? So you have to help them in, in those parts, right? But once you... I guess so, basically, like, once you can lay a framework, like a conceptual framework for the project, and then some kind of, um, some kind of structure to work, for them to work within the organization, I think, like, that's all they need. I don't think they need to be told, like, how to think about these ideas of marginality, or think about the exhibition space, or think about, you know, promotion, or anything like that. I think they can figure all of those things out. I think you just have to have, like, the most overarching, you know, like, those kind of have to be provided, because I feel like those are the things that people who are there 40 hours a week are most capable of doing. When um, when you say conceptual framework, what do you mean? Could you give an example? Um... Like, so if you're doing a music festival, you know, does it have a theme, that kind of thing? If you're doing an exhibition, you know, you know, like our last, the last thing I did with the CAM was a, um, a photo fest exhibition between the Contemporary Arts Museum Houston and the Manil Collection, right? And so that's something that had a lot of different parts and it had to, um, it's, it's, it's something that, that they couldn't have really, um, that was a relationship that they couldn't really have created and, like, and fostered, right? So we have to do that, right? And then kind of... Once you establish it and you show them the resources that are available, then they can go crazy and trying to divide it up and give it context and... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I mean, in say, well, this is the work that's about this, and this is this, this about this. Well, no, so normally, like, the way we did those things were we, they would, they would come up with a theme for the exhibition, okay? So, I mean, I've, so after I've kind of um, established a contact within the museum or whatever, and they have agreed to do it, we then bring the kids in, or the, the, the teams in, and, and kind of show them all of the images in the photography collection. So we did this two times. One time it was like, it was basically like an abridged version of everything the, the Manil held in their photography collection. And the second time it was like everything. So through looking at that, um, they came up with their, their own um, theme for, for an exhi- a small exhibition which was going to be in the hallway there, right? Um, and 
from so basically once they they looked through all those those photographs they went through kind of different um i guess sessions or selections and then like they figured out what the theme was okay as it related to the larger photo fest thing mm -hmm. so and that that's like without you know that's without our without too much tampering from from others supervisor people you know so I think that they in and for me really that that's one of the most in terms of exhibitions I think that's been in the one of the the greatest exhibitions that team council's done so far um, it was written about in the um, New York Times uh, photo blog um, section um, yeah I don't know I think it's just and hopefully it will have like a lasting effect on them because they got to see a lot of different aspects from that that part of going through the collection, seeing you know just digitally, then seeing what prints look like you know in terms of collection before they're framed, then going to the point of um, having to figure out how many numbers of prints are going to be in the show. It also sounds like from the adult view viewpoint, you know, the the best thing that you were able to do was um, one provide. Um, uh, a loose framework and then secondly just access to resources and um, uh, access to other institutions uh, basically giving them contacts and showing them where the stuff is at mm -hmm. yeah. and they just kind of they, 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 they make stuff that uh, yeah I mean sense. And, you know, they did their own writing for the small, like, brochure. Um, yeah, the arrangements of images, that, that was all them. Um, with some some uh, support, but, but yeah, I, I think those are, the, those are the kind of arrangements that, that have the most, um, yeah, potential for me. Okay. Yeah. But even thinking about a city like Houston, like, that kind of stuff doesn't, I don't think that kind of stuff happens very often. So, someday we're gonna have to talk more about that. Okay. Um, not today, though. I'm gonna go through my last three questions with you okay. very quick. These are ones that I ask of everyone who comes onto the podcast. Firstly, um, what are you proudest of in your career as an artist or an artist educator? Maybe I should have asked you that one before we give some time to think about it. Mm, I don't know. I mean, I, I would just say being able to. Um, Oh, to be, to be making work for this long, it's not like I'm in my 60s or anything, but, you know, there's still a lot of people who, who've kind of, who've left and stopped making work since I started, right? Mm -hmm. to, so, be able to get this long, I'm, I'm proud of that. Yeah. Yeah. What are three records which have dramatically impacted your craft and your career? Records? Records, albums. Okay. Okay, so since I already said the De La Soul thing, I have to I have to put that on there. So De La Soul, Three Feet High and Rising. Also say Miles Davis, Fear the Kilimanjaro. And I would also say Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Well, that's that. Um, lastly, what artists do you think are doing significant work which has attracted you? which most people may not know about, or that just doesn't get very much attention. Sometimes they get very much attention. Or which does get attention and just has uh, really attracted you. 
lately I've been um, looking and trying to find out a lot about this woman Beverly Buchanan so I would put her down there um, I think she's going to be a big influence on me I would also say Arthur Jaffa his work filmmaker particularly this 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 movie of um, steel images he's showing called a APX Apex APEX and of course I'd say the work of Terry Atkins I don't know if he's under 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 recognized but probably say him have to say him too all right mr cyrus my final question which is usually never scripted what have you learned about being compassionate in the world and developing relationships if there's anything that kind of stuck with you as a lesson throughout the years uh what have i learned about being compassionate doesn't have to have anything to do with art yeah yeah um I've learned that the more that you give or share from what you get from the universe, the more the universe gives you. So it's not a thing about, um, because you get certain blessings, you get certain things that you need to be like tight-fisted and like hold on to those things and try to stretch them out for yourself as long as you can possibly can. Um, I think... It's about yeah, sharing those things when you have the when you can, and um, and knowing that you will get them back. Well, charity I think is related to compassion, so that would be my my two cents. There you have it, folks. Very black male show. It's all black. It's very male. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you to Jamal. That was fantastic. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. To the Love Lady Texas team, thank you, including Hiram Trevino, our sound designer for this intro outro melody. To the listeners, thank all of you for being here. The Very Black Mail Show is a production of loveladytexas.org and the U.S. Gallery, but it's powered by the interest and attention of all of you, whether there's one, two, or three listeners. Thank you, thank you, and thank you. Until next time. And what's the name of your podcast? The Very Black Male Show. The Very Black Male Show. <laughs>